0: History is full of extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation, like Grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shaped our culture and created a larger-than-life accounts of the legend. Each week, we'll uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeart, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, your fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts of Uncommon History. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, we've got a uh, really big celebration coming up here locally at the, for the Perryville Battlefield in the city of Perryville. It's going to be October the 8th and 9th. It's the 160th celebration. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the, the celebration's about?
1: Well, as uh, we all have uh, that have studied history know, and for those that don't, October the 8th, 1862, was when the original Battle of uh, Perryville, but the fight for Kentucky, is, as we know, uh, happened and every year it's closest to that date, the weekend closest to that date, that we have our uh, anniversary of that and our commemoration of that, and some years are bigger than others. I know the 150th was a huge reenactment at the park, so this year we're going to do the 160th, and uh, I had a meeting last week and uh, found out there's about a thousand reenactors already signed up to come, and lot of artillery and horses and uh and, and
0: that's really big to have that many that's, people coming that's in a for a
1: significant battle yeah uh, we are also having a lot of things downtown um brian i think you and i are going to be set up downtown by the uh we'll be by the new footbridge uh, the, unless plans change that uh, we can't foresee but uh we'll have our antique engine sit there and uh, we'll have a table up we'll have some uh, information about our podcast and uh we're also going to be doing some ghost tours this weekend. There's all kind of other events going to go on in town. So if, if you're interested in history, if you love uh, ghost tours, or uh, if you've never been to the Perryville Battlefield, you need to come. It's going to be something that I think uh, you'll really enjoy.
0: And if people want to find out more information, they can go to downtownperryville.com, mm-hmm. and that will kind of give them a list of everything that's going on. And if you want to do the History Ghost Walk, try to get into Harold's uh, group because uh, he's very entertaining, very knowledgeable, and he he does a great job uh, on on presenting those. Well, I think uh, all of
1: our guys do. We have three uh, usually, uh, unless somebody can't make it for whatever unforeseen reasons. But uh, the last one that I did, I think we had 95 people there. Of course, I didn't take 95, but we had 95 people show up. So it's a really popular thing. And, you know, there's been some type of experience going on with every single one of them. Uh, they've they've caught and excuse me they have caught uh, anomalies on their phones and pictures uh, orbs all kinds of things that have happened just about every single one of them
0: so uh, it's really interesting. Uh, so basically, the events will be going on in two locations: one out yes. at the park, of uh, yes. Battlefield Park, yes, and then also, <clears throat> excuse me, downtown where they'll have food trucks and uh, vendors and just right. different things kind of going on downtown on Merchant's Row and kind of around that area. Yes, and the reenactments will be out town.
1: They have two this year, one on Saturday, one on Sunday, and they're also doing ghost uh, tours out there. Oh, okay. So they're going to do a ghost walk out there as well. So we'll have one, I think, in town. It'll be late, uh, but I think they're having two out there, and I'm not involved with that, but I encourage you to
0: do do that too because the ones that I've done out there, they are really neat. I've enjoyed them. And, and so, I mean, there's going to be a lot going on. It'll be a great weekend. The weather's usually great during the mm-hmm. first weekend of October. And you know, kind of get out of the house and come and, and learn a little bit about history and, and have fun, and it's something for the whole family, right? Right, um,
1: Brian, are you ready
0: to do a podcast? I'm ready. So, what are what's our topic this week? I see we haven't talked about no, this, we never talk have. about, see, you about thought this. thought that I was going
1: to do something else, yeah, and I changed right at the last minute. I have you know, I, I want to tell our listeners and, and also tell you, uh, the process. The thought process that goes into a podcast is really weird, and sometimes I'm right, and sometimes at least it I'm is right. for us. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we can't speak for everybody, <laughs> yeah. but for us, I'm sure there's some yeah. people
1: who agree with me. Oh I'm yeah, sure. but uh, I I have a hard time sometimes. You know, I'll get a subject in my head, and I think, "No, boy, that'll be interesting." You know, and I've read some about it and everything, and then I start doing some digging, and uh, eh, it just doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's just not a good story. But uh, you know, I think that, I hope people enjoy this one. My Old Kentucky Home. My Old Kentucky Home. Yes, it's a state park,
0: but there's stories there. And those of us here from Kentucky understand right. a little bit about the right. history. So,
1: What do you think of, Brian, when you, when if somebody said, could you describe My Old Kentucky Home, how would you describe well, it?
0: Well, I'm going to be honest. You know, the first thing I think of is being at a uh, at a basketball game or a foot U.K. football game and singing My Old Kentucky Home. Yes. Um, I've been down there uh, several times and kind of took the tour and um, – <sighs> You know, just the, it, I think it's, it's it's really pristine the way they've maintained the right, property right. and the house and everything, and um, it's it's a really neat place to go to. Do you think
1: that creates an image for our state?
0: Oh, I think it does.
1: Okay, is it's we're going to talk a little bit that about southern this, antebellum kind of. Exactly, uh, we're going to we're going to talk about that a little bit, get into it. But let's talk about the guy that built the house, the guy that owned the house, the guy that came. His family came from Pennsylvania, uh, York County. Pennsylvania. He was born in like 1773. Now, after the Revolutionary War, there was... Well, who, who was the guy? John Rowan. John Rowan, okay. Yes. Uh, the Rowan family uh, fell on hard times after the Revolutionary War. Now, after a lot of wars, I have noticed there is economic hard times, and I'm not smart enough to understand why, but that, that <laughs> has happened. And so they came to Kentucky to get a fresh start. They came to, they came to to start anew. Now I don't know how that works, but they started and got off at a at a fast pace, evidently, because in a few years these people became one of the wealthiest families in Kentucky. And I'm not sure how that happened. You know, I, that's I would the American story. Yes, I mean that's yes.
0: the American dream right there. It's uh,
1: they, uh, they they ended up in Bardstown. One of the reasons they chose Bardstown. Now this is this is how these people thought there was a, a, a school there, an academy called Priestley Academy. And Dr. James Priestley had quite a reputation for having a really, really great school. So they entered young John Round and his four siblings in this school, and uh, so they would have a good education. That was very important to them, as it is today. Yeah. But, but, you know, you would not think in that primitive conditions. first of all, there would be a really great school there, and second of all, that that was a high priority for him, uh, coming out of the situation that they came from. Now, some of his early classmates are like a who's who of early Kentucky. And I know most people, probably unless you're really deep into Kentucky history, probably don't know these names. But we're going to come back to a few of them uh, later. But uh, James Talbot, John Pope, Jesse Bledsoe, Solomon Sharp, William T. Berry, Robert Wycliffe, uh, Joseph Hamilton Davies, Felix Grundy. Uh, John Allen and Archibald Cameron all these people had successful lives and notable people and and to, to most of us that uh, uh, or excuse me to people that are really not into history but if you googled any of these names you would come up with a pr- pretty remarkable life right But there's also another twist to this we're going to get to okay. gonna take a turn we're going to take a turn and uh, I'm gonna come back to some of these names. Uh, from there, he, 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 he was, got his elementary education there, and then he went on to Lexington. Where he uh, was taught law under George Nicholas. Now, George Nicholas was the one that taught Henry Clay, and I think he was at Transylvania. The, the information I have did not say, but Transylvania was poor, more noted as a medical school than a law school, but maybe he did, uh, maybe it was Transylvania. But anyway, he was in Lexington, and he received his law degree in 1795. and He was 22 years old. Wow, so he started practicing law at 22, and in 1799 he went to Frankfurt as a member of the uh, a, commi- a constitutional convention, which was around that time. And he was uh, he had already had some law practice. He had already made his name known, and he started building what we know today is my old Kentucky home. Um. It, <laughs> The the house he you know if if you if those that haven't been there this is a big stately brick home it's it's called built in what we call the federal style of architecture thus the name federal hill um, this house was not just a house this house became a popular place now I'm not sure how he put managed to pull this off but I know that if you were it was a list of who's who of people that came and stayed at that house. Now you know, in early Kentucky, we didn't have motels, hotels. We didn't have places for people to stay. So, you know, it wasn't unusual that travelers stayed in houses and rented rooms and right. so forth. But this was a little different. Uh, foreign dignitaries stayed there. Uh, travelers that we call of distinction, people you know that that uh, the who's who in the political and the entertainers, uh, people in the theater. You know, and he would almost pay. Like if there was a, if there was a real well-known uh, Shakespearean uh, actor that came to town, Judge Round would pay and put him up at his house, just so he would be there, so that right. people would get a chance to meet him. Yeah. So he's a pretty sharp guy, he's pretty yeah. smart. Uh, he became a very affluent. How we don't know. I really just don't know. But uh, he ended the, the uh, political scene. Uh, he was known, the house became pretty much known not only just in Kentucky, but all over the country. Yeah. Um, there was a, a culture that created and an image created by this. And that was something that was becoming one of the things about this house that. And we enter the end of the story, Stephen Collins Foster. Now, Stephen Foster was a cousin to. John Rowan. Okay, uh, the information that I have said that he was a cousin, and uh, Stephen Foster was not a native Kentuckian. He was born around in a little village close to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in eighteen twenty six, he uh, he came to visit his cousin at the at the at the the uh, Federal Hill there, and he was absolutely enthralled. That the beautiful grounds, the ha- the way the house was, the way of life. It wasn't just a house. It was a way of life. Right. He was enthralled by the majesty of the the, the, the grounds. Uh, he was amazed at the, the you know that—I don't know if people know this or not, but there is just about every known species of tree in Kentucky planted on that— That's, that's
0: native to Kentucky. That's native that to I Kentucky. Did, you know, yeah. I, never,
1: I never realized that. And gardens, flowers— there was just all kinds of things that made the place just special and beautiful. And again, people of influence, people had money; uh, they could accomplish these things. Right. Uh, his visits seemed to inspire him in a way that uh, he actually honeymooned there in eighteen fifty two. Um, he he started to uh, come more and more often as he could. Uh, I think, personally, I think he would have liked to live there. I, do not, I don't know why he didn't. But, um, so they shared a, <laughs> he shared a vision that is, I think, is remarkable in this story. Now, it's one thing for us to go to a place and enjoy it and like it, but it's another thing to sit down and have deep emotions about it. Yeah. And to write a song like my old Kentucky home, you had to have deep emotional connection some it's
0: kind of spiritual connection to the, where you were at right yeah
1: and he wanted to express this in the most idyllic image that he could and his his method of doing it was through music and now they were at a party one night and uh, they were it was a lot of young people and they were dancing john Rowe and the second was a young man then and they were having a good time and he had written this song evidently he had all had all this on his heart and on his mind. So he had sat down and he'd written several scores on rough draft. And he sat down with this young lady and she encouraged him to sit down with her at the piano and try to put it together, you know, in the song. All
0: right.
1: And he did. And, uh, th- everybody just like, they stopped what they were doing. It was like, they listened to that and it was like, wow, you know, th- th- that's really good. You know, that kind of yeah. hit a chord with people, uh, within a few months, uh, he had published a song, and within a year it spread all across the United States. It was probably one of Stephen Foster's po- more popular songs. Uh, it was said that Stephen Foster composed songs while wandering through the fields, playing his flute. Huh. He would he would <laughs> he would wander through the fields and watch the servants work, and 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 they said he would stop and sit down under a tree and play a flute, or sit out in the middle of a cornfield, or you know he. And, Set by a guard and go down, set by a stream. He was, he was, he was really inspired by that place. And we don't know how many other songs that. he Was wrote. he
0: already a well-known musician or author songwriter at this I time? I don't think so. No, okay. I don't think so. I think he became because of the Mount Kentucky mild home th- but, and, o-
1: but, and others. Right. It was Old Susanna, and I don't have many other. Yeah. several. I'm, I'm not. But at this time, one.
0: he wasn't. He was just kind. of... I don't think so. Okay. Not,
1: not yet. But by the 1850s and 60s, he was. Okay. Um, for some reason, the place just. Absolutely inspired him. Now, a cloud started forming. You know, if, you ever, if you're ever out in the country and you're working, you do not really pay attention to the weather, and you look up, and, you know, back then, uh, people would get caught out in storms and everything. Well, there was a cloud forming over Kentucky, and it was called the Issue of Slavery, Issue of States' Rights. Kentucky caught right in the middle of the
0: north and the south and trying to stay neutral And he, but Kentucky really was. I mean, they were neutral as a whole officially, but there was sections or parts regions of the state that identified with the North and and the South. Exactly. So
1: yeah, the the slaveholder Western Kentucky was more Confederate. The Eastern Kentucky was more Union. Didn't have slaves. The poor the poorer sections of Kentucky did not have slaves. So therefore, they did not see it the way that the people had had mm-hmm. slaves. The so they things. were really a,
0: a state divided.
1: Oh, very, very much so. And then there was families divided. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure, uh, you know, it, it, it was it's probably, it's probably the being sitting on a fence is worse than being on either side. Yeah. And, you know, God Goffin tried to declare neutrality and President Lincoln told him, said, you're either forced or you're against us. There's no such thing. Yeah. And so that that's kind and, of, and both
0: uh, presidents were born in, in Kentucky. Kentucky, which yes. is kind of not unusual not that many miles apart. Yeah.
1: So it's 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 that old problem that hung over Kentucky for so long. So he decided to go back to to uh, Pennsylvania during the war. Um Sir Walter Scott wrote it, it, I mean you know uh, he said that, that a man, excuse me, let me th- breathe there the man with a son so dread who never himself has said, 'Tis my own, my native land,' and when Stephen Foster left Kentucky, he left with a very sad heart, that because he saw what was coming, he knew that what he had written about and the life that the Rounds had lived and, and the passionate things that he had written about was probably gone with the wind, just like the movie. Yeah, he knew that that would be the, a change would come. So now we're going to take a twist of this story. It's going to change dramatically here. We're going to move from from Stephen Foster to the darker side of my old Kentucky home. okay? Most, a lot of people don't know this story part about my old Kentucky home. Dr. Round was a you know, very proud and educated man, well-known poly- politically. He was a congressman, s- served several, in several capacities. But there was another young man in Bardstown that was very successful too, and his name was Dr. James Chambers. Uh, he was a handsome young surgeon and physician. Uh, his father-in-law was Judge James Sebastian. And he was on, on the Kentucky Court of Appeals. Now, the cloud that hung over Dr. Chambers was that his father-in-law was caught up in as one of the Spanish conspirators that had accepted a $2,000 a year uh, payment from the Spanish government to influence laws passed and the Western expansion and travel up and down the Mississippi River by the, by the Spanish. They wanted to control the rivers, to control... Right. Uh, trade on the river and he was uh, basically one of those that had been <laughs> sold out Had sold out
0: yeah
1: it's quite the scandal of that time to be honest with you we will get into it was we don't have time for it but on january the 29th 1801 john round and dr chambers and some others met upstairs in the room of the duncan McLean's tavern in bardstown now i think i'm pretty sure that building is still standing and it's right on the square in Bartstown, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, they were there for a round of beer drinking and card playing. <laughs> <laughs> see any problem with that, Brian? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was common in those days, you know.
1: The... Well, the two of them had ordered a gallon of strong beer, which they drank before they went upstairs to play cards. Now, it, it, it was said that they were getting uh, pretty well on their way before they even went upstairs. <laughs> And they, they played a game called, now I don't know how to pronounce it, it's V-I-G-U-T-U-N, Vigatun? Vigatun? Yeah, it's a new one on me. Or 21, which I think today we call Black Blackjack. Blackjack, yeah. Okay. So uh, as the game progressed, Judge round uh, won $11.50, on credit. these <laughs> <laughs> guys getting, are some <laughs> real whales. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's a guy who owns 2,000 acres of land, and all, but he didn't have $11.50. Yeah. from I guess maybe that time that was maybe a sizable amount of money. I don't yeah. know. He'd run it from Dr. Chambers uh, besides several gourds of beer. So the the doctor became a little bit irritated as his bad luck seemed to get worse as the night went. So he began to question, he asked the bystander, which didn't sit well with Dr. Round, if he would just kind of watch and keep score and keep track of things, because he didn't think this things was going right. And as Judge Round became more intoxicated, he began to flash his cards around that he carried, and uh, he said, damn you, doctor, give me a card. He started, and here we go. Yeah. And as they began as it began to escalate, the judge and the doctor began to argue. Now, don't you listen? To this? <laughs> you, again, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> if I was making up a story, I couldn't make this up. Uh, they began to argue, to which understood some of the dead languages the best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brian, what's a dead language? Oh, it's a language that's no longer spoken. It's like-
1: I, I I can't imagine. I mean, these were really educated people, so they had ever they only had some education in, quote, dead languages. Yeah. So yeah. maybe some of our listeners can. And unfortunately, us. there's
0: people going in, in the dead with hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, debt to go to college to learn these dead languages.
1: Well, and then they they started this thing about one was vastly inferior to the other. Yeah. Okay, so we got this big pride problem here <laughs> going on. <laughs> big time. <laughs> And Judge Round jumped up and called uh, the doctor a damn liar, and the doctor responded by collaring him around the neck, <laughs> and it said that he was superior to Round, and he said, I'll be damned if you are, and Dr. Chambers says, I'll be damned if I'm not. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> and according to a witness, each uh, asserted his superiority with warmth and vigor. <laughs> <laughs> Thus the fight broke out, several punches thrown, and it said that the judge... Hit the chimney wall <laughs> so many times he dislocated his thumb, <laughs> and they got him broke up, you know. And it was, I could just see this scene, you know. And you're you're probably in some pretty tight corners in some of these old buildings, and they, yeah, you know, they was banging against the walls and everything. <laughs> uh, when the belligerent linguistics <laughs> were separated, <laughs> they found that Doctor Round had his thumb broke. And Doctor Chambers had scratches and bruises all over him, but seemed to be in the better of the two. Uh, and then he then called Rowan. He said, "This is a good example that you are a coward." So Rowan uh, shouted, "Whoever says so is a liar and a damn fool and a rascal."
0: <laughs> Such <laughs> harsh words. Yes. Oh yes.
1: <laughs> At this point, the doctor threatened to publish him as a coward in the newspapers in Kentucky. Now, let's talk about that just a second. When you challenge, you know, uh, there's this thing about their pride. This was such a important thing to them. And I think uh, Stuart Sanders in his book, Murder on Ohio Bill, Bill, oh, you Bill remember yeah. he, how he talked about how that it was so important to people that day? And it, I guess it's still important to us today, but, I mean, they carried it to the maximum of how people looked at them, how their community viewed them was more important to them than their life. Yeah, And so when you published a statement, calling someone a coward or whatever in a newspaper, that was like a slap in the face challenge to a duel. Yeah, So this is where this is headed, as we can see. Two days after the, the brawl, Chambers challenged Rowan to a duel and named, and named the time and the place and the method and Rowan accepted. And now Rowan accepted, uh, had selected, excuse me, two guys to be his seconds. Now, for those that uh, aren't familiar with dueling, and I'm no expert in it by any means, but what would happen would be uh, you would challenge a guy, you would send him a note, he would accept it, send you a note back, he would then select his second or seconds. Now, these seconds were important In other words, they were the guys that stood on the side. First of all, if you got wounded, they would be there to take care of you. Second of all, they were also carrying a gun, and they were to enforce the rules, the code of duel. And so their seconds was, as a guy, he's got to have some courage too. He's got to be willing to put his life on the line for you. So it had to be a good, dear friend, loyal person. And sometimes they had more than one. Sometimes they would have two in case the other guy had two. Yeah, but uh, these guys did not cheat, so to speak. Uh, they they pretty much wanted to show their courage. Yeah, by by accepting this duel. So the the judge that Rowan selected was Judge George M. Bibb, and he didn't have to be a judge. Um, excuse my double talk there. But now, of all people, <laughs> this was a family that invented Bib Lettuce. <laughs> did you know that? No, <laughs> I did not. Well, there's, there's that uncommon history part. And from Frankfort, Kentucky, if you go downtown Frankfort and you go down uh, near the Orlando Brown House and some of that area, of the old part of Frankfort, uh-huh. you will see a sign up about Bibb and the avenger, inventor of Bib Lettuce.
0: I had no idea. In that while, <laughs> I had no idea about that. One. Uh,
1: he also uh, selected a guy that was... Uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, he was a U.S. senator. And I'm sorry, I think I missed his name. Under President Tyler was, it, it was another fellow. So Judge Round had two guys. Dr. Uh, Chambers selected uh, a fellow by the name of Major John Bullock of Nelson County. So <clears throat> they're getting ready here to have it out over dead languages. Yeah, who's the best at dead languages? <laughs> I can't believe they're going to fight to now the death gets, over dead this, languages. I mean, this gets better. Okay, you know, if it was up. a woman
0: or something like that, I could probably yeah, understand no, it. But over dead no. languages, <laughs> <laughs> no. A cow, you know, you stole my cow or no, my pig, maybe, no. but not not dead languages.
1: This is more important here. Yeah. This is this as challenges as my education ability, <laughs> educational. All right, friends of both parties tried to mediate, and you know, they tried to talk to him and talk some sense into him. Obviously, to avoid bloodshed. I mean. There was ways that you could, you know, say, look, you know, I apologize, whatever. No, neither one of them would take the first step toward that. So they even offered to negotiate. <laughs> they even offered to negotiate a dead language contest. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> on the dueling grounds and have an, imp- an impartial judge come in to decide who was the best at dead language. And, and people think Kentucky's backwards. <laughs> <laughs> <Can't imagine. laughs> Can you imagine meeting on dueling grounds? Can you just picture this in you're meeting on a dueling grounds, and two guys get out take their coats off. You think you're going to get pistols, and all of a sudden you start talking about dead languages? Well,
0: I challenge anybody listening to pick any other state that's had a duel over dead languages. Yes. Please tell us. We'd like to know.
1: <laughs> uh, the seconds met uh, in Joshua Wilson's Tavern, and they play in the duel. Now, there's a little bit more of this meets the eye. So on February the 3rd, 1801, on the Beach Fork River, just south of Bardstown. Now, I can show you where this happened. And actually, there's a historic marker up there unless they moved it. Uh, it's right across. There's a bridge as you go out. Oh, gee, I've gotten in trouble. I can't tell you the road. But it, it runs south of Bardstown. And right before you get it over the Beach Fork River, if you look to your left, you will see a historic marker. And right in that bottom, in that right there by that bridge is where this happened. Wow. So um, – they were out there at daylight, and they had to wait till the fog lifted. Can you just see this picture? I mean, I, I, it wouldn't that be a great movie scene? It would. Okay, you, you're out there. As soon as the sun comes up, they're out there. The birds are chirping, a peaceful, tranquil setting. These guys are about to – one of them about to die. Right. Um, so they the, they waited for the fog lifted. Uh, the, the place was uh, owned by a fellow by the name of Jacob Yoder, and it was a plantation um, and he comes into play a little bit later in this story too. When after this duel, uh, I don't, I'm not sure I understand how they picked that spot, but uh, he 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 definitely did not like John Rowan. Uh, once again, the seconds tried to intervene. You know, this is probably the responsibility of all rational people. Is right. you know, this is not worth dying for. Uh, Jib, J- Judge Bibb brought uh, a brace of Rowan's pistols. Rowan furnished the dueling pistols. And, um, they, he presented them to be inspected and they both looked at them and accepted them and they were loaded and they were to stand 10 paces back to back from each other. Uh, they would move out 10 paces, stand back to back. And as soon as the word was given, they were to turn and fire. they didn't walk and then turn and fire. They walked and stood still and they said fire and they would turn and fire. Um, they, the seconds, again, were standing there with loaded pistols to make sure that no cheating happened or anything. So they took their coats off. They took their positions on the field, and they turned, and they fired. And both missed. So now there's an opportunity. Okay, there's opportunity to say and say, hey, okay, both you guys have shown you're not cowards. You're not afraid to, to, to call us through. So let's just call us off now. You both can say you're both winners, right? you know, but no. No, this dead language <laughs> was way too important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's just, I mean, this is just just way too important. And actually, it wasn't about the dead languages, so to speak. But anyway, so on the second fire, Dr. Chambers hit the ground immediately. Uh, the bu- bullet entered right into his ribs under his left arm, and any time in that era when a bullet hits you there, you're done. Uh, Judge Round walked over to him. And asked if he had any further need of him. If he didn't, he would leave the field, in which he did. And immediately, Brown, uh, excuse me, Rowan expressed sympathy for Doctor Chambers and regretted his actions almost immediately. Um, doctor Chambers was taken to his home to die. Uh, there was a doctor called, and there's a little more to that story. But anyway, it was, yeah, the sum of it was. Uh, now, Doctor Chambers was a popular guy. And then this excited a mob. You know, um, I don't care who you are, the, you probably have, and you're very public like these guys were, you're going to have friends and you're going to have detractors. Well, I'm sure Judge Rowan had his detractors as well. And this was an opportunity for them. Uh, to so, make an issue. So they, they excited a mob in Bardstown, and they, so they were going to go out and lynch him. And Judge Rowan saw them coming. He's suspicioned, you know, he'd probably gotten word. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's more of this than we know. But so he took one of his servants and put his hat and coat on him and put him on a horse, and he waited till the mob could see him, and he sent his servant away riding his horse. And so they went after him, thinking that was him. So then he went and hid out in some neighboring cliffs around his house there until things calmed down. Uh, the popular opinion was kind of against him. Mm. Yeah, it... it it didn't sit well with people and um, but it's really interesting how this plays out that dr chambers died the next morning from the gunshot uh, ugly rumors started immediately that round had cheated that he'd used his pistols and he had a hair trigger and and that round had heavy paper under his clothes to uh, to ward off the bullets um, after a few days round was arrested by the local sheriff uh and uh, charged with murder. Although there were a laws against dueling, now listen to this, Brian. The judge said that Round acted brave, generally and honorably, and threw it out and said there was no evidence to hold him as a case to a grand jury. That's almost That's un- hard right. to believe, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, you had witnesses, unless the witnesses were not willing to yeah, testify. I, that... I, I, obviously political. Yeah. I mean, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I it's almost dumbfounding, and, and uh, nothing come of it. as the end of it. Uh, however, of course, he had to live with that on his conscience, yeah. uh, which, you know, may have been worse than the punishment he would have received yeah. or whatever. But
0: you no know, one started over a dead language.
1: And he went on to to, to live a reasonably long life, uh, great prominence, was judge on the Court of Appeals in 1838. He was president of the, of the Kentucky Historical Society, he was Secretary of State in 1804, elected by the Kentucky Legislature in 1824. So old wounds heal. Yeah, you know, evidently, uh, Judge Round figured in many prominent Kentucky murder trials as well.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> well, he, he would have firsthand knowledge. So. I mean,
1: it it you know he was in several, and I didn't go through all that list because I didn't want to to uh, you know that gets kind of boring. Right. He moved from Federal Hill in 1823, not to have anything to do with anything, but he moved to Louisville, and his son took over Federal Hill. And he lived in Louisville until July the 13th of 1843. He he died, and he was 70 years old. Uh, And his legacy isn't so much about the duel. It's not so much uh, his political career. But his legacy at Federal Hill is... Most known for my old Kentucky home. The song. Uh, And and the the little second part of this, uh, of this is that he wrote his will many years later, after the duel. Um, And he never, you know, he he never forgot that. And he he in his will he bequeathed his pistols to his son. And he said. They are never to be used by either. Now, I don't understand what "by either" means, but when uh, their honor uh, imperils demands it imperilously demands it, and in the case I knew they will be held steady.
0: So, so he's kind of reflecting back on when he had to use use them for his honor, defend his honor. Well, guess what? What's that? Young John was in a duel too. Really? Yes.
1: Yes, and he was in a duel with Thomas Marshall. And I'm not sure and I didn't get into details of this duel, but his his sweetheart, Rebecca Carnes, John Rowan Junior's sweetheart that they would eventually marry, she demanded that she not that he not kill him. That she 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 did not want him to shoot him to kill him. So he fought the duel and he shot the guy in the hip and which made him a cripple for the rest of his life. Wow. So that is the story of my old Kentucky home and the Rowland family.
0: Well, that was a really good one. So just a reminder, don't forget uh, the downtownperryville.com, October 8th and 9th, 160th celebration of the Parable Battle. You can find us on Uncommon History on Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. We also have a webpage, uncommonhistory.us, and we thank you. and. Uncommon History is produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wilford.